been a lot of different things happening this week, and as we draw closer to the end of the year and closer to the things that uh, God is calling you to, I, I meet opposition from time to time. This week has been no different. We've had some software issues with the computer. Uh, my screen cracked on my computer. My poor wife had to go brave Barton Creek Mall on a Saturday. Not just my wife, but also Jared's wife had to endure the mall on a Saturday after Thanksgiving just so we could have screens and, and just do normal stuff. Uh, yeah, I, it just is like we, in a time where like here lately we've been trying to really uh, um, budget down, so to speak, like just crack down, save as much as we can uh, because of what God is calling us to. Um, man, I, I just seems like the devil or the enemy. And we're going to talk a little bit about that because the enemy's real and things like that. But today, we're going to be back in Mark's gospel. Uh, we're going to be at in chapter 6 uh, of the gospel according to Mark. If you want to turn there, we'll start there. And, and, you know, in all of this thing, let me just say this, and about what we're going to talk about today, I'm a pretty simple guy. And I really... Uh, tried my best to take just an honest look at the Bible and just take it at face value. I, that's kind of really mostly what I do. I am always amazed that when other people don't see things at, in the Bible that, like, to me are just plainly there. I don't know if we go in it looking for what we want it to mean or, or what have you. I, I remember uh, when the book Radical came out and... I had been saying a lot of things to my friends. They were like, "Man, you you know you you're you know you're kind of a radical kind of guy, uh, Jim. You, the way you talk about Jesus, the way you talk about discipleship, it just seems so you know so so heavy or so you know you know whatever extreme or whatever they wanted to call it." And then and then like the book Radical came out by David Platt. Wonderful book, great book. I, if you haven't read it, you should. Uh, <clears throat> and it's a good book. But in the book, when I read it, you know, all my friends are like, oh, it's so awesome. You should read it. Well, I read it. And when I read it, I was like, well, yeah, this is just the gospel. I don't, it's not all that radical. This is the same gospel we've been all like learning. So I don't know what, what we're doing here. And I remember thinking, you know, like, well, I guess at the end, the only thing I can think of is if you'll like, take it at least from this guy because he wrote a book and called it radical, like, that's awesome. Whatever it takes, because if you couldn't listen to me, maybe I'm not scholared enough. Like, that's okay. You know, as long as we get it, because here's the thing is, man, I really think that we complicate the gospel way too much. I think we got our hands on it way too much. I don't look for hidden things. I don't look for things that, that are to be symbolic unless it's like really obvious that that's what the text is trying to do. If it says to do something and then I see the apostles live it out, then I automatically assume that the text means exactly what it says, period. Right? It's simple, it's easy. And that being said, when I taught biblical discipleship to students, I rallied around really three specific points. Because one thing we learned about students and in doing student ministry, which I need to teach us a little bit about that considering where we're going to head towards. One of the things that I learned, because it taught me how to teach discipleship. Because one of the things that's easy to do as a preacher, it's easy to preach on a Sunday. Some of you are like, I don't really think so, I think it's harder. No, 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 it's harder to live and teach and educate and go side by side with somebody and disciple them as a friend and wait for them to get it and wait for them to like grab a hold of the gospel and live it and wait for them to have these aha moments 
That's the hard part. Getting up and preaching a 20-minute message on Sunday than going home and not caring what happens afterwards, that's 10 times easier. It was, I realized real quick, if all I wanted in student ministry was just to preach, yeah, that's going to be great. But if I ever wanted to see kids or students have their lives transformed by the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only way that was going to happen is if I got involved in their life. I had to live with them, be with them all the time, disciple them, learn the stuff that they, you know, get to know them, teach them a basic fundamental walk that they couldn't, you know, necessarily fail in. And so I narrowed all this down to three things. And I said, if you knew these three things, we were good. You were going to do just fine. Because truthfully, we make the gospel out to be a whole lot more complicated than it is. We make the Christian walk to be out a whole lot more complicated than it actually is. And some of you know these points that I'm going to talk about just real clear because I think they lead us up into where I want to go. Uh, and these points are basic, they're fundamental, they're three pillars that if you practice them, I promise you, you will be led into strong discipleship. Uh, uh, and it, it looked just like this. The first thing and foremost that I taught everybody was to pray. There's no like, oh, wow, like aha moment there. I, I, I taught that a fundamental rule of discipleship is that you must be someone who prays. There is no such thing as a disciple that does not pray. There's nowhere for a precedence of that in the Bible. You can't even get saved without praying and asking and talking to the Lord. By the way, that's all prayer is, asking and talking to the Lord, communing with God. All the disciples prayed. Jesus made sure that he taught them. Jesus prayed constantly and encouraged prayer in every believer. If you read the Bible, there's no way you can actually walk away from that thinking it's okay not to pray. It's all over it. There's not a single book in the Bible that didn't talk about somebody praying. God desires relationship with us. That's what it should tell us. That since the beginning to now, God has still talked through men in different forms, but most commonly the form that God talks to men is through prayer. Relationship with God comes through communing with God. You've got to talk. Uh, uh, a lot of marriages don't last because of why? Because communication. When communication ceases in a relationship, your friendships are over. Like, you don't even know why sometimes, man. You look at a lot of students, they would tell you, like, when, you know, the friends that they were with in third grade, they're not friends with in, in fifth grade or sixth grade or so on, or, 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 you know, in high school is different from middle school and how your friends, well, what happened? We just kind of quit talking. And when we quit talking, there was nothing there. There's nothing there. Students understand this. Students understand that communication creates relationship. They don't need the uh, uh, theology behind that thing. They understand that praying is talking to God and that God is talking back with them. They get that part. You just have to instill that part in them. Show them where that's valuable. Show them where other people have prayed. You encourage that whole thing, right? The apostles were more curious about how Jesus prayed than even how he performed miracles. At one point they say, uh, teach us how you pray. Because they saw that the power that came from his ministry came from his time with God. So prayer is always the number one thing we start out with as far as the pillar. I would always teach students is, number one, man, you've got to know how to pray if you're going to be a disciple. You need to pray. Even if you don't know how, you've got to start somewhere, man. Even the infant lips can pray. Talk to God. Talk normal. I remember a time where I used to say all the these and thous because I'd read the King James so much that even when I talked to God, it was in the thee and thou. Oh, thou Lord. Lord, thou knowest you're the highest. And I mean, I would say those things. And, and it's not like I, I felt like the Pharisees later on when they would say they talk with such eloquent words, you know. But 
I felt like that in my prayer time, but it's all I knew how to talk. I'd, I'd read the King James so much, I felt like I talk like Paul sometimes, you know. I remember times where I literally would read so much of Paul that I, there were times in my sermons where I would write brethren, brethren, the brethren, or stuff like that. that. That's not really culturally relevant to my time, but I was reading the Bible so much it just came out of me, right? So we, we need to be serious about prayer. The second thing I would teach every student is this. And I don't know why we don't talk about it that much. I haven't heard it even, even when I was at other churches very much. Uh, I think we say it as cliche now, but you need to read your Bible. <laughs> That's a foreign concept in the world of, uh, by the way, we can do this audibly now. So even if you're like, hey, I can't, I'm, you know, I'm a struggle to read or it's just, I don't have time. Uh, by the way, I think it's still good to read the Bible. Here's why, because there's things that hit you when you see a certain word that audibly when you hear it doesn't do the same. Like it just sticks out for whatever reason. There's just like certain words that just stick out to you. And you're like, I'm not sure why that rings out to me, but something. But there's also times where audibly when you hear the word, something sticks out to you in such a way too. They both have value. They both have value. The Bible says that salvation comes through the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel. So, I mean, there's definitely this, this audible thing going on. There's this reading thing, right? But it's pretty simple. One of the most asked questions I've ever heard in ministry as a pastor is, Pastor Jim, how can I know what God wants for me or what I'm called to do? I just want to know what I'm called to do. I'm just trying to search out what God is wanting to me to do or calling me to do. And I'm like, that's an awesome question. And here's the thing I immediately tell them. I don't know. I don't know what God's called you to do. But I know this. I know what we have to do first, what God's already told us to do. What God's already called us to do. What he's already said, this is the will of the Father. Right? Well, how can you know what those things are? Well, read your Bible. Read your Bible. You know, you're going to be praying now, which is you're talking God direct, but now you want to know a little bit of background story. By the way, when we get married uh, and we have spouses, one of the things that I can ask a spouse usually is the background of their spouse because they usually know it. Well, how do you know the background of somebody that you end up marrying? Because you've been married to them for a while. You talk about everything. You want to know everything about them, right? Well, the great thing about God is I can pick up a conversation with God in the present, but if I want to learn about how God acted with his other friends, how he treats his other friends in the past, how he's treated mankind throughout the ages, I can just simply open the Bible and read God's character. I can, you know, when I look back and, well, why would I trust God? Well, I can read and tell you why I can trust God. It's, I can read his story and tell you. I, because of his story, my part to play in it, even, even how small compared to the big story, I can read and look back and I can see. But we need to read the Bible to see those things, right? The words contained in the Bible are life because they're God-breathed revelation put down so that we might know the person who's created us. It's his story. Through God's word, we receive instruction for all sorts of things, ultimately helping us to live a righteous life. Now, most people don't struggle with these two things. Most don't. This is not the hard part. The hard part is not teaching you how to pray or teaching you the value of prayer. You get that. The hard part is not teaching you to read your Bible. You understand the importance of God's word, God's life there. The things we're going to draw from today come straight from the Bible. You understand that there's truth found in the Bible, that there's good stuff there, strong things there, and it's not hard to get you to understand that. However, this last one is where we find ourselves today in Mark chapter 6. And it's one that immediately brings up fear of judgment, fear of the unknown, and fear of the failure, and a lot more. The last one is going or being sent. That, these are the three pillars of our faith. Discipleship is defined by these three things for sure. One, 
when I come across anybody in me, do they pray? Because if they don't pray, there's a pretty good chance they don't know God. And it doesn't matter any of the else. Nothing else matters. If you don't pray, there's a pretty good chance you don't know God and you don't know God anyway. You can know his scripture all you want. If there's some power to, re- to knowing the scripture as far as that goes. But if there's no regular communication between you and God, how can you have a relationship? That's physically impossible. But most people pray. Most disciples I meet, they can pray. That's not a big thing to them. That's not a holdup. Most people I know, they'll tell you, yeah, I know I need to be reading the Bible. I know that that's a good thing. I know that, and, th- and they'll do that from time to time. They'll read the Bible. Christmas story's coming. They're going to read out of Luke, you know. Uh, Joy's family does that every Christmas. You can guarantee it. We're going to open the book of Luke, and we're going to read out the whole Christmas story every Christmas so that the Word of God, we understand that the Word of God needs to be read. It needs to be heard. Uh, it needs to be preached. There's, there's no doubt about these things. These are all things we can do within the confinements of our own small little, you know, home. We don't have to go out. But going and being sent to others to tell others about Jesus Christ, right? I mean, how much of us really just really love public speaking? How much of us really love to put ourselves out there? How much of us really love to just go out and just tell others and yet... It's a pretty big commandment. I mean, the, one of the last things he says before he ascends is how he's sending the Holy Ghost so that we'll have the courage to go. Because he knows how hard it is because he gave us the command as well. Go and make disciples. Mark chapter 6 now starts with Jesus basically training up his disciples so that when the time when he says go, they'll be able to go. Now listen here in chapter 6, verses 6 through 13. It says, then Jesus went from village to village, teaching the people. And he called his 12 disciples together and began sending them out two by two, giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. He told them to take nothing for the journey except a walking stick, no food, no traveler's bag, no money. He allowed them to wear sandals, but, but not to take a change of clothes. Wherever you go, he said. Stay in the same house until you leave town. But if any place refuses to welcome you or listen to you, shake its dust from your feet as you, were, as you leave to show that you have abandoned those people to their fate. So the disciples went out, telling everyone they met to repent of their sins and to turn to God. And they cast out many demons and healed many sick people, anointing them with olive oil. We'll stop right there. Now the last time we saw Jesus... He was being rejected by those for which he grew up around. He immediately leaves now, and he goes from village to village, right, sending his friends out now to do what he was already doing before they went home. He basically gathers them all up, and he says, look, see what I'm doing? Good. Now go do it. Pretty simple. I mean, it's not like he didn't show them the whole way. There's a lot of things that happened up to this point, right? Uh, this command kind of still stands, too, because if we look to Matthew 29 or we look to the end of Luke, it gives us this great commission, which is basically the command to continue in the work of Christ until he returns or until we die, whichever comes first. There is never a command that tells us when we'll retire from this or when this work will be over. I often say, you know, it's funny to me when I hear preachers say stuff like retire. Preachers don't retire. They die. That doesn't mean they're effective at what they continue to do in the pulpit. But that whole calling or anointing just doesn't die out of them. Just don't believe it. I I don't know how like that dies. The, The command doesn't stop because you hit a certain age. The command... Uh, is as soon as you've come under the revelation of Jesus Christ, this command now belongs to you, right? 
This is simple. Again, it's very simple. I'm just trying to keep everything simple here. Look how Christ taught his disciples right here. First of all, he sent them out in pairs. Cool move. I've done a lot of ministry in the past 15 years or so, but I've never had to do it alone. You know that? I've never done ministry alone. One of the first things that I learned uh, as a leader anyway was that if you go it alone, you end up alone. So that always scared me anyway. My wife will tell you I struggle to be alone. I don't want to go hunt alone. I don't want to go drive long distances alone. I, w- I just assume like, like when there's errands that need to be done that require me going to Austin, I would rather be here with somebody, order that thing off Amazon than ever have to drive by myself for an hour alone. I just don't like being alone, right? And, and, and I think all of us are somewhat kind of like that. I know that there's moments where we like it. I mean, there's moments where I go hunting and I am alone and those things because I know I need it or whatever. But when it comes to the work of the ministry, I think that there's power in the fact that God doesn't send us out by ourselves. Having someone to share the burden, having someone to share in praying, to share the experience with <clears throat> has genuinely helped my heart here. As the responsibility gets greater, God sends me what? More people to share in that spiritual load, so to speak, right? I mean, this is why it's not one individual runs anything. There's no one individual that steps out. There's only one shepherd, and that is the great shepherd, and all of us are following after him, and we help each other out in the following process, right? So when God sends you other people, and for me, that's you, You help share the load of everything that goes on here. When you greet somebody as they come in the door, you're helping share the load. When when you go to do and help out with some of these outreaches and you sat at my house and we laughed and it was a lot of fun, yes, but you're sharing in the load of trying to reach out and love people so it's not on one individual. Having other believers join us for the journey helps us to have what? Courage. When fear would grip us, when it's hard, right? When the... Uh, uh, and it also gives us comfort uh, when we need a little encouragement. It allows us a healthy, le- a healthy level of accountability also to the task that we've been called to do. Right? So when I got somebody next to me, when it gets scary, having somebody next to me helps me go fight. When it's good, having somebody next to me helps me enjoy the moment even more. When I'm, when I'm scared and I want to fall back, having somebody next to me holds me accountable to the thing God's called me to do. There's power in it. Sometimes we need to be reminded why we're doing what we're doing. And it helps when you got somebody around that can speak that kind of life into you. And I think Jesus knows this. Next thing he says, he gave them authority to do what he called them to do. Simple. Just as he gave them authority to do what he did then, the same goes for you today. You've been given authority under the great commission, the commandment to go Right? According to chapter 16, verses 17 through 18, to cast out demons. In my name, this is Mark. I'm kind of moving ahead a little bit because when he gives the Great Commission towards the end of this gospel, to cast out demons in Jesus' name, to speak in new languages, uh, to handle snakes with safety. And it says if you drink anything poisonous, it won't hurt you. It says you'll be able to place their hands, your hands on the sick, and they will be. Healed. This is the authority by which you get to operate and fully move into. This is what he sends you out to do, right? He sends you out with this anointing. He sends you out, all of us out with this anointing. And if God sent you, know this, that God will empower you. God will empower you to do the work that he sent you to do. But I will say this, our faith will determine how much we walk in this. 
Remember, we've been talking about a lot about how much do you trust God, all right? So if God sent you, do you really trust God with where he sent you, to what he sent you to? By the way, if you really do trust God and you can believe in the sovereignty of God, do you think you live here by accident? Do you think you meet people by accident? Or do you think God has appointed you in an appointed place at an appointed time to do the appointed work that he's called you to do? You tell me which one sounds more godly. Why don't you pray and read about it and see which one comes up with? God anoints those to whom he sends. He gives authority to those whom he sends. We're only as strong as our view of God, and that is determined by our faith in God. Do you trust God? Do you have faith that God has done these things for you? And if you don't, you hold back and you don't tell others because you're scared. You're moving in and operating in fear and you're operating in a lack of courage and, and operating in a fact that you don't think God is who he says he is. You might all know I do believe that. Then why aren't you walking in it? At some point, faith puts out the left leg, drags the right behind it and does whatever it takes to get the job done. That's what faith does. It pushes you. Faith believes in things that aren't seen. By the way, that's called the impossible. That's the impossible. Jesus was very specific into what authority he allowed us to do. We are to use our authority to set people free. Specifically here to cast out evil spirits or conduct spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is alive and well today, guys. Paul's writings about the armor of God is not a, a textbook. I wrote this so that you would... This was Paul's conclusion to his own life. So that when he wrote... Uh, to the Ephesian church, this was like, this is how I deal with evil and wickedness and spiritual high places. I've developed that I pray over my life, uh, a, a way that I view the spiritual realm. All right. And, he, and so when he writes it to the Ephesians, he's like, this is my solution, Timothy. Young man, I know you're worried about a lot of things in your age, but let me tell you, it's not you're not fighting against flesh and blood. You're fighting against something else. And let me show you how I deal with it, Timothy. Ephesians 6, 11 and 12, he reminded him that to put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against the tragedies of the, de the strategies of the devil. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers, authorities of, unseen, of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Paul had experienced so much spiritual occult, he eventually begins to pray in a way that his heart would be armored up for protection. So there's no doubt. One of the reasons we don't go or we struggle to go is because we know that we're going to face opposition. We know it. And oftentimes we're not prayed up for it. Paul says, you better pray for some protection. It's going to happen. You're going to face persecution. You're going to face problems. You should pray. And if you haven't read Ephesians 6, you should. If you struggle with attacks from the enemy, which everyone does, this is a wonderful gift from God into the prayer life of Paul. Allow his experience and his words to help navigate this for you. We must guard ourselves in the work. You just don't walk about. Listen, you're going to get hurt. That's part of it. That's part of it. If you don't hurt, you wouldn't be human. Jesus wept in the ministry, okay? You are going to weep too. It's part of it. But we must guard ourselves in the work because we must be about his business of setting people free from evil spirits. If we are the ambassadors of Christ, then we too must believe that God has sent us to set people free as he did now, so do we. 
The next thing he gets on, he says, don't take anything either. This is crazy stuff for some, some pastors and stuff. Don't take anything. No food, no money, no bag. Don't take anything. Now, for the apostles, this becomes the testing ground of their faith. Not only am I going to send you out, like, um, you can have a walking stick. Uh, walking stick don't got water in it. It's not like a Rambo walking stick where you can, like, unscrew the top and pour out water, fishing string, everything you need to survive. It's not a walking stick like that. It's just a walking stick. This is a, this is a proving ground for them. This is where they're asked, do you trust Jesus? Going, Do you trust me on this? It's, this is, it's like a resounding theme in the New Testament. Do you trust me? You trust me because I'm, I'm going to send you out. I'm going to send you out. And it's, it's, I'm sending you to the wolves here. And it began with the trust and faith. This whole thing does, right? If you, can, if, you, if you trust God, don't bring anything. Trust that God sent you, then God will provide for you. Trust that. I need you to trust. It's like Jesus going, can you imagine them? Like, don't send anything. Man, it's a far walk. From village to village is a far walk without food and water. Um, I need you to trust that God's going to provide for you. This is going to be the walk for you. This is going to be the walk of faith for you as you do this. So not only is it going to be hard, and you're going to tell people and cast out demons and all these other things, but I'm going to send you out there without money, without food, without shelter. I need you to be okay with this. And notice Jesus immediately begins addressing their needs right after he says, don't bring anything. He in faith tells them just to stay with those who receive you. This is to imply that God will take care of you. Now, if you look at this passage from Luke's perspective, we see that Jesus actually said a few more things. Luke 10 verses 5 through 7 says this. This is about the same moment that's happening. Jesus says to him, whenever you enter into someone's home, first say, may God's peace be on this house. And if those who live there uh, uh, are peaceful, the blessing will stand. And if those that are not, the blessing will return to you. Don't move around from home to home. Stay in one place, eating and drinking what they provide. Don't hesitate to accept hospitality because those who work deserve their pay. Basically says, listen, I'm sending you out. Trust that I'm going to have a house waiting for you. Trust that you're going to have to humble yourself and take their hospitality and receive from them. But remember, don't feel too guilty here because what you're offering them will change their life forever. That's what he's saying to them. Like, you are not just walking into the house with nothing to offer. No, you are going to set their house free. You are going to place a blessing upon the door that will bring peace to their home, blessing to their home as long as you're there. In this, we see that Jesus comforted them by telling them that they wouldn't be bringing anything along. They'd have to solely rely on God for everything. God will provide. He would take care of their basic needs while they were doing what he asked them to do. It's really simple. If you do what God asks you to do, God will provide. He will take care of you. You're just doing what he's asked you to do. That doesn't mean that you won't have to work for it. That doesn't mean that there aren't things along the way you might have to do. It just means that you can rest assured that it will be accomplished. It's a whole lot different to walk into a situation with assuring or with assurance than being not sure about what you're supposed to do you know for the last uh uh uh, there's a lot of times in my life where I was like well I'm just not quite sure about it and when I'm not quite sure about it you know what that usually will tell you God didn't specifically tell me this is what we should do is what I'm trying to tell you that's what I like I'm, I'm subconsciously telling you 
when I'm sure about something, it's something God has spoken into me. For instance, uh, years ago, uh, when we first uh, became youth pastors for First Assembly here in Marble Falls, um, one of the things that uh, uh, youth pastors do in the Assemblies of God is uh, they raise money for missions. The youth program in and of itself usually funds a mission outreach called Speed the Light. Speed the Light, the, uh, they provide like vehicles and uh, transportation and uh, 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 like, huh? Yeah, transportation and like media. So like if you need microphones and video stuff and all this other stuff that missionaries need, you know, when they need to get from A to B, whether it's a camel, a buck, a, a, a donkey or a car, Speed the Light provides all that. And so all that the, the students raise, teenagers raise in the assemblies, all go towards this organization, right? Well, when I get there, you know how much I think the student ministry had given right at maybe the year before, like $1,000. And immediately my heart begins to hurt because I'm telling you, I know missionaries. And missionaries are a lot like what we see right here. I need you to go you know, whoever your name is, and you're just going to have to trust that God is going to somehow supply people who are going to pay you when you come and preach. Um, and you're just going to have to trust that I'm going to provide a way for you to get wherever you got to go, and that I'm going to be able to provide for you while you're there. And I think about like Jason Morris, who's in Vietnam, and he's having to teach on the side while he's getting some people who are supporting him here, and, and, I, and I'm thinking about how hard that is to juggle all that. Your kids are being raised in a foreign country. They're, I mean, they're speaking in two different languages now, and I mean, it just, I'm thinking about the difficulty of all those things, and you're having to trust God along the way. Well, my heart hurts for missions. Why? Because it's evangelistic in nature, so am I. I want to tell people about Jesus. My heart hurts for missions. And so I begin to pray, and I begin to seek the, the face of God and be like, God, it, listen, it's $1,000 that was good for them. And, and I'm, not, I'm not saying it's bad, God, but I want to do more, God. And I, it's not for the sake of being seen to do more, God, but because they're, they're missionaries that need this. How can I help? This, is, this would be something they don't have to buy. And God, God literally said to me, came to me in prayer and says, uh, uh, and he, he said, 4, 8, and 12, and he began to place me, and I began to talk to God. And what he was saying is like, all right, we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you get to here. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to give $4,000 this, this year that you're taking it over. I want the next year to be $8,000. You're going to double it every year so that by the third year we'll reach $12,000. And at that point, the church had only seen about $11,000 ever come out of their youth group as far as for missions. And, and I began to think... Yeah, right. Like, I mean, we're all excited when God speaks, by the way. If you're not, you're crazy. You're missing something. But you don't really think about how it's going to actually happen, right? I don't know if anybody else, but I, I wasn't thinking, like, how is that going to happen? First year, 4,000, I'll be honest, I was pretty confident of that. I felt like in my own physical ability, like, we can make this happen. I, I can do enough, like, garage sales. You know how fun those are. And, yeah, I hear all the, yeah, I hear the moaning because some of y'all did them. Um, uh, they're awful, right? I mean, like, all these things. We, we did $4,000. We did like $4,800 something, $4,900. Awesome, right? God gets glory. Yeah, yeah. That's the easy part to me. The, the 8 and 12, like it moaned and groaned to get the 48. <laughs> How are we going to do the 8 and 12? And, and I began reading and listening to what other people were doing. I was looking for opportunities and stuff. And I read about how a, an Assembly of God church in Pennsylvania, the youth pastor started collecting scrap metal, and he gave $100,000 that year to missions. 
And I was like, oh, my gosh, $100,000. I was like, that sounds like a full-time job, man. And, and, and I began to think, well, look at scrap metal prices. And I think, yeah, that's what we're going to do. And I remember getting up on a Sunday morning and asking for that time and saying, can I announce the vision of what we're going to do? Uh, because uh, it was a time where it was a missions day or something. And so I get up there, and I remember saying, this is what God told me. We reached the 4,800. Now we're, now we're striving towards eight. And I believe God wants me to do this, wants me to start collecting scrap metal and da-da-da-da. Can I tell you, this is when you know it's God. Like when you're taken completely out of it and God just like does some crazy stuff. By the way, crazy stuff is this. This couple who had only been at the church like maybe a month, older couple, comes, comes to me after the whole thing is over and goes, listen, I've got a 16-foot flatbed trailer. It's yours. God told me to give it to you. You can have it. This is what you're going to need to collect scrap metal. I'm like, are you sure? Because I, I mean, that's awesome, but I, I don't want to, I, I, I just, I know that I can get it done. I'll figure it out if that, I don't want to put anybody out. You know, oh no, this is what God's told us to do. And here's the first check for 1500 Day one. I was like, day one, all right, January. Now I just got to get like seven more thousand. We're good. But I was like, first month, you know, first day, like, like God, like all of a sudden I got a trailer and I've. Can I tell you, we went on to do almost $9,000 that year, and then the next year we did almost thirteen. doing scrap metal. People would start to call me. Like, I had an account with the Hill Country Recycle Place out here. Like, I didn't have to, you know, everybody drops their, uh, uh, anybody else that doesn't do scrap metal, if you don't know, you actually have to drop your driver's license and, like, all your information off anytime you're doing scrap out there because there's so many people that do steel scrap and all this other stuff. I had an account. I was like a regular, like we were on first name basis. Like, I mean, I was like a scrapper, like everybody else apparently that comes and just makes money off scrap metal. And, and, it, and it got pretty, pretty amazing uh, uh, what we could do with scrap metal and the money that God, God really did through that. And all of that was a God move because when what? When God sends you, God provides for you. Now, I, I'll be honest. You know where God was when I was picking all that stuff up with Tyler and Taylor and my kids and everybody else's kid picking that stuff up? He was in the sweat off our back. God provided the scrap. He provided the opportunity. All we had to do was walk in it. That's all we had to do. The same thing here. God's saying, listen, I, I've got provision for you waiting in these villages, but you're still going to have to walk there. You're still going to have to say it out of your mouth, the blessing and the curse. You're still going to have to do the work of praying for people and seeing them cast, you know, set free of spiritual demons and evil spirits. And that you're still going to have to do the work. But I'm telling you, I provided. It's already there waiting for you. This is the same thing. It's the same thing. And, and, and here's the thing he says, like, he says, it's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. None of this is going to be easy. And he even says this, some will... Some are going to refuse. Some are just going to refuse. You're not going to win everybody. And that's okay. That's okay. You move on. I once read this, and I'm a firm believer in it. Why should anyone hear the gospel twice before everyone has heard it at least once? Why should anybody hear the gospel twice when there's people out there that hadn't heard it at least once? You, you get your moment in life. And you hope to you, man, when it comes to the grace of God, if it comes to you twice, then it is by the grace of God. The first time is because God's commanded that his word should go out and it not return void. The second time you get to hear it is by the grace of God. You're not owed it. You're not owed it. Our job isn't to win people. Our job is to go. Our job is to do what we're told. 
We are the sent ones sent out to share with, with the people the good news of Jesus Christ. And you need to be able to rest in that alone. That needs to be enough. They aren't rejecting you. Get that out of your brain. They are rejecting him who sent you. In this, you actually become like Jesus. In Luke 10, 16, he says, And then he said to the disciples, Anyone who accepts your message is what? Accepting me. It's got nothing to do with you. Get over yourself. And anyone who rejects you is rejecting me, not you. And anyone who rejects me is really rejecting God who sent me. It's not you. It's okay that they don't come to church. It's okay that they don't come to, to your home and listen to you talk about Jesus. It's okay. That's how you can love people and never be offended, by the way. You know how many people I know, I talk to all the time that probably will never come in this church. And I talk about God and Jesus all the time, and I am never offended, ever. They get asked, but I'm never offended by it. Why? Because it's not me that you're rejecting. It's not me. It's the one who sent me. It's Jesus. It's him. It's not me. It's, it's not you that rejected your message, and ultimately the one whose message it is. Last thing on the subject. I always taught pray, read, go. And I always taught that the last one is rarely done. Everybody can do the first two in the comfort of their home without ever having to be rejected or feel like a failure. I mean, you can kind of self-gloom yourself a little bit with the first two, but the last one, you know, for a fact, man, is where we feel guilty the most. Because how much do we really spread and how much do we really evangelize the gospel of Jesus Christ? For whatever reason, we struggle with telling others about Jesus. We want everyone else and everything else to just be able to do it for us. It's the truth. And the church has gotten real good at using every medium under the sun to do the work that God has called our lips to do. That's a quote, by the way. You could quote me there. That's the truth. We're, listen, we're cute in how we explain our responsibility away, too, because social media, advertisements, those are awesome platforms. Sure, uh, uh, they, they can be great, but they will never replace our physical lips telling people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Never going to. Never going to. They can move us emotionally, but you can't remove from Scripture the part where it says they hear it from preaching the gospel. They hear it from our mouth. You can't remove that part. There are tons of reasons why we outsource this, but often it's just because we're scared of rejection, we're scared of failure, or just flat-out low self-esteem. We don't think we're good enough. We don't think we're well-spoken enough. We don't think we're smart enough. We think, man, I, I need to be like a theologian to talk to him about Jesus. I don't know why. Lost people don't know nothing about Jesus. What's worse is they know nothing, and they, they act like they know something, which should even tell you more reason why they need to hear about Jesus. It's funny what works when it works. Y'all have heard my story. Would you have really thought that like a message like, or, or, you know, if you die today, do you know where you're going? Would have worked on me? Totally worked, though. Made me think about Jesus. I mean, it's amazing what works and doesn't work. Don't get all caught up in that. Yes, be Jesus. But Jesus also told people to repent. Jesus also confronted people in their sins. Jesus also, you know, got rejected. Okay? That's part of the Christian walk. It's all right. But at least you told somebody. Do it with the right heart, and it's going to be even better. Do it with a judgmental heart, yeah, you're going to be the one causing people to run off, but come on, at least try. You're not the only one struggling with all this, right? Our pastors are too. Look at our churches are too. We see it in the churches all the time that pastors struggle with evangelism too. Listen, I'm not old at 
I don't think so yet. And I'm pretty savvy on technology, but I, however, the more our culture leans towards social media, the farther they get from the beauty of the gospel. The way technology has kind of driven the church today, it's, it's kind of messed things up a little. On social media, everything is pretty. Drives me crazy. Everything is pretty. Pretty photos of families and our churches. Everybody's a happy moment. I mean, you go look at anybody's church photos. It's these happy moments. Nobody shows you like the down and out gloomy moment where like that one guy came to your church and nobody liked anyway. You know, nobody shows those moments. They don't take pictures of that. They always put the best pictures they can on their websites. It's always the cleanest, the prettiest stuff you can. Pretty stages with everybody in the right places. Everybody's time just right with their hands up. You know, I mean, it's always that stuff, right? Pretty lights in the background. I mean, you got all of it, right? We frame every photo to be a perfect moment. We Photoshop our sermon titles into something professional looking. Come on. I did good work. Right? Yet, we, we try everything and making it cute and organized, but the gospel is this story, listen, about how God takes broken things and forgives them. Messed up things and forgives them. God takes a mess of a man or a woman who doesn't have it all together and he forgives them. They're spiritually clean, yes, but to us, they still look like a mess. One of my favorite pictures, I don't have it up here today, but one of my favorite pictures is this picture I took of Johnson Park and these huge, beautiful trees and this green landscape with the, with the grass right in, and beautiful and there's this water in the background and then there's the dumpster overflowing with trash, right? And I could have cropped it out and you'd be like, oh, that's a gorgeous picture, but that's not the truth. That picture is so much like us in our life. There's a lot of beauty to our life. But the truth is that dumpster that we like trying to pack everything down in, we can't get all the trash in it. It's like hanging out the side. Oh, it's, it's pretty gross. I mean, it's like you could see the bags just hanging off the side there where everybody dumps their trash in that thing, right? It messes that whole landscape up. Everybody said, well, if you just take that, if you just crop that out of the picture, but that would be a lie. That would not be the what is really it looks like down there. And here's the thing is, guys, I think that's what we do with our life, man. We try to crop out what we don't like with church. I don't want to show you this side of church. I don't want to show you this in my life, so I'm going to crop this side of my life out. And that's what we do. And I think, I think we messed up here, right? That the contrast of seeing what God does with grace and somebody's messed up life Man, this is what saves people. This is the gospel, the power of the gospel. Unfortunately, when we cover our mess with, you know, these societal Photoshop filters and neatly framed moments, we often miss what the gospel is actually doing in someone's life. Listen, I'm not against the pretty church, but I am looking at its fruit over the years and seeing it rotten before my eyes. Or has anyone else seen our country and communities? I don't know about you, but we're not reaching anybody. I mean, it seems like every year, does it seem like a, fruitful, like a fruitless work? Like every year, there's more people born into it. They don't know anything about Jesus. I can't even get a foothold on the generation that I'm supposed to reach, much less a whole other one being birthed into a generation by a bunch of people who already don't believe in Jesus Christ. If this work doesn't seem overwhelming, I don't know what does. And by the way, it doesn't look like uh, Christianity is winning because it's on the decline in America. Now, everywhere else it's flourishing where there's third world countries and poverty and disease and all these things that persecute the church. It's flourishing. But here in America, not so much. I think it all comes back down to the gospel and how we tell our story. 
how we present it to everyone else. And, and listen, I just want to be honest about who I am and what God's done despite of who I am. That's the story of the gospel. I'm a recovering alcoholic and drug addict. I've, I lied at one point about everything, everything growing up. I would say the sky was green just to say it was green and see if I could pull off the lie. I mean, that's just how I was. I was a kid like that. I struggled with anger and just being mean for the sake of being mean. But I still struggle with that a little. However, something happened to me on the road of life. God knocked me down, and he ambushed me with his love and grace, and I ain't never been the same since. And there's no pretty story to that. There's no pretty story about how at times we fought Joy and I through things because she was having to lead our family because I was godless in our house. There's no pretty stories. You see us now and you think, oh man, they got it together. No, man, that's Jesus is what you see. And here's what, I, what I'm scared of, I think, the most, that if I present to you something false, then you'll fail to see the gospel of grace working in my life. If I pretty things up too much, you'll never see what God can do with something ugly and broken and despised. Because, by the way, that's what the gospel was here for. If you're already pretty and neat and packaged nice, the gospel came for the broken, the downright, those who are oppressed, those who have evil spirits in them. I mean, like, that's who it came for. And if we keep denying some of that, man, and not letting people see that, then how will they ever see the power of what he can do? God broke me. He shattered my heart of stone, and something radical has happened inside me. Got worship come. On a good day, you can see the love of God and the desire for in me to be like Christ. And on a bad day, you can see the grace of God trying to work on me and help me through it. How many have some bad days? Amen. Every day is a struggle to be more like Christ. The more I conquer one thing in my life, the more I conquer one thing, the more another surfaces uh, that God has to work on and, and ultimately help me through. But, but, but one thing's for sure, God continues to help me. What helps me in telling others is the constant fact that God has never abandoned me in the process. That's where I feel like I don't worry about rejection when I tell somebody my story, like or when I talk about who I am. I don't pretend to be perfect around anybody. I don't pretend to act like I have it all together and I'm a guy who you can come to and it's going to give you the greatest answer in the world. I rarely refer to myself as pastor very much. I don't ever feel like, I've told people multiple times, I never feel like, like I was supposed to be in the pulpit. I feel like God said, no, I'm placing you there. That's what, that's what the pulpit needs more than I needed it. Because I think more than anything, God just wants to see some honesty in us. Like this is who we are. We're not perfect, but that's the glory of God and the grace he's given us. That we can stand not perfect and yet still be righteous. We can stand not perfect and still be holy. We can stand not perfect and still have peace and joy and blessing in Him. God has never abandoned me in the process. He always forgives me. God always accepts me. God always loves me through my stubbornness, through my meanness, through my anger. And I am determined that one day the war within me will be over. But until then... I aim to tell everyone about the greatness of Jesus Christ. Everyone to who all I've been sent to. And here's what I've called you out for this morning as we get ready for worship. So should you. So should you. This is what God's called you to do. I don't have to guess at that. 
God's called us to tell others about Jesus Christ. If the church doesn't grow, that lays at the feet of the church. It's not that God has not provided. God has anointed the church with the message that will grow it. God has anointed the church with the power for healing, setting free those that are oppressed. God has anointed it for the work. It is just looking for laborers that will go. God is looking for laborers. Every church. <laughs> There's only one church. And God knows every single person in it. Every single person in it. You're, this is what we're called to do. 